You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Erasmus Stylianessis. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 22. We got a fucking awesome episode for y'all right now. Uh, we have two amazing guests. Uh, I'm going to introduce our first guest, Ayla Cuenca. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Ayla Cuenca. Such a lovely name. Um, Ayla's a dear friend. She's amazing. I'm going to read her bio here. Uh, she's a holistic birth guide and doula. She's a mother, gardener, empath. And my favorite part, she loves late 80s garage punk. She stands behind the idea that it is every human's right to have access to empowering education from conception to parenting. Her practice is dedicated to offering guidance that will enable women and men to return to their deepest knowing about birth, parenting, and the body's innate intelligence. Ayla reminds every woman that when it comes to birth and everything else in life, they can have what they envision through first understanding their needs and really getting to know their options. Her approach is rooted in evidence-based information and informed by both ancient traditions and her intuitive Reiki practice. She studied anthropology and ethnographic photography at Bennington College. After years of farming, teaching, and working commercial photography, she trained as a birth doula, birth educator, and I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right, placentophagy specialist. Placentophagy specialist. She currently lives in Miami, Florida. Alyssa, welcome so much to Here for the Truth. You mean Ayla? Ayla. (laughs) I I literally do this. I feel like I've done this before. Uh, Ayla, welcome to Here for the Truth. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. And today for the first episode ever, we have two amazing special guests. So we have Alyssa in the house today as well. Alyssa is a former professional dancer of over 20 years. She has owned her own dance studio for six years, has mentored thousands of aspiring dancers along the way. And after experiencing her first home birth to her daughter, Valley Grace, Alyssa became inspired and fell in love with the process of natural birth. She's since trained to become a certified birth doula and is dedicated to empowering women about natural birth and healing birth trauma which she believes is the primary blockage to women knowing and understanding their full potential when it comes to stepping into motherhood. She's the founder of the organic mother and baby balm and remedy range mindful and home. And she spends her time focusing on loving and nurturing her own young family holistically and raising her daughters as consciously as she can. And for full transparency, (laughs) Alyssa is my amazing wife. Oh Uh, shit. I didn't know that. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Ladies, thank you both so much for being here. This is an episode that we're really excited to have. And I think this is the most important conversation. Um, And the work that you're both doing is of utmost importance, particularly during this time. There is nothing more essential than what what you're both offering. Um, So I don't know where we're going to start this one. There's a a lot to unpack. There is. (laughs) Real quick, I just want to say, I just want to give a shout out to everyone watching this, to all our patrons too. The first mm. episode, the first half of the episode will be available to the public and the second half of the episode will be available to our patrons, our members, okay? So, but we got a lot that we're gonna talk about this uh, this episode. I'm really excited. Yeah, um, let's let's kick it off on a basic level, I guess. Um, Ayla, why is empowerment around birth, 
understanding birth, the natural processes? Why is this knowledge so potent and so important? Mm. Yeah, so we're in a time right now, and we have been for a while, um, where other people are dictating the narrative of how we are bringing children into the world. And um, that entire structure is empowering, disempowering in itself. And I see that, and I have seen that over time through studying anthropology, um, how that can sort of leak and filter into other areas of our lives and essentially kind of create this ripple effect of disempowerment um, throughout child rearing, um, throughout an individual just seeking out their own desires um, in, their, in their path of life, in their walk of life. So it really begins in that birthing process. Um, so that's, I, I find right now, especially in the time we're in, it's so essential to understand that it really is your body and your choice. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It really is the beginning and the foundations of, I mean, it sets the it sets the tone and I guess the initial blueprint for everything that we experience in life going forward to some extent, we're always feeling the consequences of, you know what I mean? Our birth experience, you know? Um, yeah. Alyssa, any, any commentary on that? I, I love to say that um, peace on earth starts at birth. So it's so essential to have um, to stand in your power, to know what's going on, to know what's happening, understanding the process of birth um, so that you can step into your full power as a mother, but also as a baby and as a child going through uh, life and growing up. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important to understand natural processes, understanding how your body works, but also coming back to that place where you trust yourself because so um, along the way, so many conditions and so much conditioning um, has led you further and further away from yourself. So coming back to that and, you know, breaking down all the walls to, to understand yourself, to understand your true potential and your true power is so important, um, as well as stepping into motherhood down the line as well and how you raise your family, because um, now more than ever, ever, we don't have a choice you know, and this is where our children are going to learn how powerful their mother was and how powerful their family was, um, you know, to give them a voice later down the track, not to just succumb to all of this pretty much bullshit that's going on right now. So definitely, um, yeah, super important. The way you're born and the way a mom gives birth is, is essential. It's one of the most important things I would have to say um, in life. I love your statement, peace on earth starts at birth, you know, and I'm sure maybe we'll, we'll get into our own personal stories, you know, during this whole process, but uh, I'm just going to drop something real quickly is just like, and I had a really traumatic birth. So uh, it took me time to gain more peace in my life, you know, and I'm sure that foundation, um, that foundational experience that wasn't, let's say ideal, um, had an impact, but I'm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious to, to continue that discussion there. Um, I guess one question that I want to start with is, and hopefully, you know, you, you have the answer, or I don't know, it's just like, where did we go wrong? Like when, when was this like shift? Obviously there's like the whole movement away from like natural health to like the allopathic system, et cetera. But like where in regards to like the birthing experience, was there this big shift in turn towards, you know, where we are right now? And anyone can jump in. 
<laughs> I, you know, I might say probably around the 1500s when we began medicalizing um, birth. Uh, you know, the first C-section was reported to be around that time. And it was kind of like this idea that we could go against what is the greater design um, and how, how human life unfolds. So it was this idea that birth was now under the umbrella of what is medicine and science. And I don't think that that's true. I don't agree. And so from there, we, we, it just progressed, you know, and eventually we got to the 1890s where birth was fully medicalized and then the 1940s when uh, basically 90% of women were giving birth in hospitals and that was really the way to control the narrative you know once a woman gives birth in a hospital um, you basically have your cash cow for life which is um, a, a traumatized mother um, who's been potentially emotionally, psychologically, and physically injured, and a child who has also been emotionally, psychologically, and physically injured. Uh -huh. um, so there, there you have your customer. And so the pharmaceutical industry really, really took hold, I'd say probably in the 1800s, but it was leading up to that for a few centuries before. Yeah. It's crazy to think that, you know, but it makes perfect sense that these powers at B or whatever they whatever they are, you mean, would have an intent to hijack the most natural process possible. You know what I mean? Literally the transition from divinity into this physical human experience that we're having and for that to be co-opted in the way it has been and for us to really step back and look at the stark reality of what's taking place around literally us being born from the divine, from the cosmos, from wherever we come from into this realm is it's sickening to think about. And I mean, obviously they're trying to clamp down even further and further um on that on that process so yeah it's yeah. it's crazy yeah. Alyssa, where like why did you decide to embark on this path like what what's what's like your story um you know in, in your bio you talked about being a dancer but what what really drew you towards wanting to um work in the realm of natural birth uh, etc well, I think I'm naturally a person that um, likes to think for themselves. I'm I'm very, you know, stubborn in that way. I like to manifestor, manifestor, human design. <laughs> I am a manifestor, <laughs> um, and definitely, I I rarely thought about birth before I was pregnant myself. So um, Joel and I have always been on this uh, a more a holistic path and always looked after ourselves and things like that. So when it came to this, I wanted to realize, I wanted to understand how everything worked. Um, so it just became a natural process for me. Um, and when I thought about it, I was like, oh, like I usually try to stay away from hospitals and I don't feel comfortable there. So where do I want to give birth? And it was in our room, in our house. Um, so that was just a natural instinct for me. And I think going back to what we were saying before, how it's become um, industrialized and what I found at our first appointment was um, it was so clinical. And so you have to get a blood test to confirm you're pregnant. So what it had on my form was disease. And then it said pregnant under it. And I was like, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. This is a beautiful experience. I'm pregnant, I'm bringing life into this world. And so it, it was just like, there was no emotion. The doctor that gave me the blood test um, tried to scare me and fear me. 
as well as everyone else projecting their stuff onto me. So naturally I aligned myself with people that made sense to me. So they were private midwives. They were people that had lived the experience that I wanted to have in this. Um, uh, we hired a doula, we did birth training, all of that type of stuff. And when I realized this was the path, um, I just, it just flowed naturally for me. Um, I think with my first birth experience, I had a 36 hour active labor um, home birth. And so we decided to, for precaution, uh, transfer to the hospital. And I now understand that I had to have this experience to be able to give and see the polarities of a home birth um, compared to a hospital birth. So I was given a time frame immediately as I walked in. I was put on my back. Um, they had in, uh, already put a drip into me without my consent. Um, and it was just a spiral. Luckily, I knew what I was talking about and I knew what I was advocating for. And that was myself and for my baby. Because in an instant, I would have been drugged up and given a cesarean and that would have been the end of it. But I really did have to negotiate. It was a battlefield. Um, and, you know, I can completely see how those experiences can traumatize someone when they don't understand um, what's happening to them or they're told this or they're told that because people just blatantly give their trust up to these people that are seen as superior to us. When my whole power was given over to those, those people, they didn't know better than I did. Um, so yeah, I ended up getting away with very minimal intervention. Um, what I did receive was, um, and because I was completely undrugged and a completely natural birth, I decided to fight for that. Um, they cut me. So I had an episiotomy to get my baby out. Um, and I felt every single bit of it. And that was the time I was in pain. That was the time I yelled um, hysterically when they told me, no, you can't make any noise, be quiet. <laughs> so it was traumatic um, in that sense for me. And I walked away pretty unscathed. Um, to be honest, compared to what other people go through. Um, and one image I still remember in the corner was the obstetrician that was paired with me, um, telling all of the midwives around her that I'm the boss here. She needs to listen to me. So it was very clear then and there that, you know, how people can fall into the trap and, and all of that. So luckily we knew what we were talking about, Joel and I, but after that, you know, I was surrounded by so many amazing women. My doula, luckily my midwives could still be with me. And those people supported me. Those people loved me the way to, that I needed to be loved. They nurtured me. Um, and that, I'm going to cry because it's just right. such a profound experience. <laughs> um, and that was what I wanted to gift to someone else because not many people get the opportunity that I do. So... Um, that's why I'm on this path. That's why I'm here to give that to someone else for families, for mothers, for babies. And yeah. <laughs> Girl now getting out. emotional. I mean, my story. You know, what's more vulnerable, you know, than even just this topic and children and childbirth. And so, like, I'm, uh, fuck, you know? Yeah, it's got like, me too. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, what I think you for- Oh no, Joel, go. No, of course. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable. Um, I know like how, how important and significant that story is to you. So yeah. What is it? Um, what 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 are we currently experiencing, and what are the primary factors that are inhibiting so much fear into women around birth, and are that are, that are disempowering them so much? What are they experiencing growing up? What are the little things that make them so scared when they finally get to pregnancy to actually give birth, Ayla? Mm, well, I I always start out by saying it's our birth education, which is primarily Hollywood. Right. So we have this idea that um, birth is dangerous, it's an emergency, and it's something that we want to get through as quickly as possible because, like, you just want the baby. You don't want to deal with what's in between. Um, So that's why we often see depicted in films where the woman's water breaks. And then, next thing you know, she's rushing in the car and screaming. And then she gets there. And as soon as she gets her, epidural or whatever it is she's getting a drip with everything's fine and then we cut to a newborn baby you know so that's the idea that we have and there's also a huge lack of education around the woman's body in general growing up there's a lot of shame um, kind of enshrouded in the process of a woman getting her menstruation and you know it's like I've heard so many stories over the years in my work of women saying like oh I remember getting my period and my mother getting upset with me or I remember going to school and then leaking through my and through my my skirt or my pants and getting made fun of you know so there's just this general idea that what the woman's body produces is somehow unwanted or should be kept to the side or undercover and it should it should be gotten through as quickly as possible and then you compound that with horror stories that you hear from friends and family or I know someone or someone's cousin had this c-section because of this and so we're just kind of like walking around with this entire weight of our own personal experience and shame with everyone else's story yeah yeah stories are super important because I mean in 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 ancient time was it was those stories that mythology those little tales that were told around the campfire that would actually build build our capacity for what we what we thought we could you mean do going forward and what we thought what what we knew they were capable of but now we live in a time where these stories are so disempowering you know so it's almost like they've hijacked the mythology and the stories around these concepts in order to to perpetuate what's going on what's going on now Mm, yeah hijack the mythology yeah yeah so yeah let's just let's just flip it uh to you Ayla in terms of like your story you know um you know what's been your hero's journey heroine's journey person's journey whatever around you know where you are now um wow um I feel like I've had nine lives (laughs) Um, but I'll just go specifically to the one where I gave birth to my daughter. Um, so for me, the, the process of being pregnant was actually kind of similar to you, Alyssa. When I found out I was pregnant, um, I went to a doctor here because my husband at the time was like, we need to, you know, see an OB. I guess this one, I found him on Yelp. He's pretty good. And I was like, uh, I don't know. I'm like, I know a few midwives, like, I'm not really sure, but it was his comfort level at the time. And I remember going to the appointment and he just took one look at me and was like, 
yeah, you know, you're quite small, you have a small frame, and I would just be open to the fact that you most likely will be having a C-section, you know, and that was the first thing that I heard walking into the office. So immediately, of course, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing this with you. And, um, and we found a midwife and I went through this self-discovery. So even though I was working with women at the time and offering support, it hadn't really personalized for me yet. Um, and so going through the actual labor process, you know, I went into labor 10 days after my due date and I induced my own labor because I was just so keen on not going to the hospital. And in the state of Florida, you have to technically be transferred over to OB care after 10 days after your due date, if you don't go into labor spontaneously. So I was doing everything I could. And I was in labor from Friday until Sunday afternoon when she was finally born. And um, for me, it was just the, the death of my former self was really the experience that I went through. Um, and I woke up basically when she was born, I felt like I woke up and I was a new person and I was in this new dimension with this being and with my family. And so um, that was when I realized like, this is something that I, I need to at least create a pathway for other women to access in, in whatever way, you know, not the same story at all, but how can I just open a doorway for them to walk through or to explore. And so um, it was such a positive, beautiful experience. And I wouldn't change a single thing about it. I wouldn't change, you know, having a second degree tear. And I wouldn't change anything about the, the experience. And, um, and thereafter, you know, the many years of breastfeeding, breastfeeding for five years was such a journey, um, such a labor of love and, um, I think that was something that really defines, you know, just within my own being, just really defines um, a lot about my character that I didn't, I didn't know, I hadn't yet known about myself. And so through this process, I've just been whatever I acquire through motherhood um, and through this kind of field work that I'm doing, I just give back to the women around me um, through my work. And um, I really feel like Alyssa and, and other women in this work, like I really do feel that these souls of these babies are, are finding us and they're actually guiding their parents to find us, to, to assist them through this process. Cause it's, you know, it's really wild in this 3D plane. And I think these souls know that and they really want um, their parents to, to be able to gain perspective and and have that experience you have of you had of being held so yeah it's my journey with the birth and, and how I arrived here it's amazing yeah what are the long-term ramifications of a c-section open to either of you well um a lot of women are induced and then um I'm a bit, I'm a big advocate for allowing baby to come on their own terms in their own time, entering this earth and when they're ready. So I think um, induction and then leading possibly to a cesarean, most of the time it's because of an induction and the spiral of intervention um, that leads to it. It's just kind of disrupted the whole system. Um, if the baby doesn't come through the birth canal, there are different triggers and different hormones, different bacterias and things that a baby 
gets wiped with as they exit um, the birth canal. So it's it triggers a bonding with mother. Um, but not only that, the baby is highly drugged as well um, in the whole process, um, whether or not that's an epidural and, and stuff. So you've got a groggy mother who, who misses out on that beautiful experience, um, understanding how powerful her body is at that time. And obviously um, cesarean is necessary in those very rare emergencies, but it seems like these days everything is made an emergency. And so the cesarean rate is very, very high. Um, and, and yeah, the bonding is disrupted. Um, if you don't have proper support, after having a cesarean, you may have proper, um, problems breastfeeding. And then again, that's, you know, the mum couldn't give birth naturally. So, oh, I can't, I can't feed and nourish my baby either. But it's not the mother's fault. You know, we've, um, the mother didn't fail her baby and herself. It's the system that failed her. She didn't receive the proper care. She didn't understand, wasn't educated on the proper processes around how birth works and how, your body is designed to keep up with the intense sensations and all of the, the influx of hormones are all necessary. So you're missing out on, on quite a bit um, if you do have a cesarean section. Not only is the recovery and the healing a very, very tough journey. I'm sure that I haven't had that experience, um, but I've heard a lot of things, infection, it can lead to a whole myriad of other things that you shouldn't be dealing with um, after a beautiful experience and euphoric feeling after birth. Um, so it does impact a lot, a lot of the natural process. So I'm curious, um, you know, I was born month premature. I was born through emergency section, emergency C-section. And the story that I got um, is that the the doctor at the time told my mom that she shouldn't breastfeed me, but also, but maybe potentially she couldn't as well. Is that you're saying? Like, if you, if you're born through a C-section, there's a possibility that like, you're not able to breastfeed your child. Is that what you're saying? Or did I miss that? Or yeah, anyone, anyone uh, could Ayla? jump in. And Ayla? Um, yeah. So it's, it's possible. It's possible for a few reasons. Um, like she mentioned um, just now, when the baby passes through the birth canal, there are, there's basically a biofeedback loop that happens and the body knows that now there's a baby and it's going to go into the next phase of milk production. So although your mind knows you've had a baby, the animal body may not have registered that in the same way. And so sometimes milk doesn't come in. Um, then the other portion of that is because you are separated from the baby for a significant amount of time after the cesarean, you don't have the body contact, you're not within that really essential one hour window where you do all of the chemical skin imprinting. Sometimes mothers kind of reach, they, they pass that threshold and then they don't feel that deep desire to reunite with the baby. So sometimes hours can go by. And some women feel disconnected. You know, clients of mine in the past have said, I, you know, I feel like shit. I don't want to hold my baby. <laughs> I don't really want to touch my baby. And they feel guilty. Um, so it could be a combination of things. Um, but really, it's the separation that happens. And you're coming off of a high amount of fentanyl and lidocaine from the epidural 
uh, women are vomiting. Uh, nurses are doing different procedures so that air is not getting trapped inside of the abdomen of the mother um, after the C-section. And so it's, it's not really a time to be breastfeeding or bonding with the baby. Um, the woman's body is in shock. You know, it's a major abdominal surgery. So um, I have seen women successfully breastfeed after cesarean, and it just requires a different type of support and really a lot of gumption, I would say. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I hadn't um, heard that described in that way. And um, another thing that I'd heard often is that, I guess, at a certain period of time, like they were really pushing formula. And so where they were telling moms not to breastfeed so they can use formula, just like, I guess you would say how MDs would push pharmaceuticals over other alternatives. So is that, was that a thing that happened or, or went on during a certain period? You know, we always have these things historically with the medical industry yeah. where it's like during the eighties or during the nineties, this is was what was going on. So yeah, there, it's, it's kind of layered and I don't know what it was like in Australia, I imagine similar to the US, but basically in the forties, there were all these advertisements that were like, oh, have your baby in the hospital. You can feel no pain, right? You would just get nit you know, nitrous gas or even general anesthesia, feel no pain. Then your baby gets cleaned up and taken care of for you. We'll feed it formula. You can rest and recover. And then you can go home completely happy uh, with this baby who's already been settled. And so they were really pushing this idea that you were going to like a five-star resort to have your baby and they would just take care of it all. So that really started happening in the 40s. Um, and that was when a lot of hospitals were being developed by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so it was just basically a way for them to funnel everything that they were producing. And what better way than to funnel it through women who were having babies every single day across America. And then in the 80s, it was kind of like the working mother thing and feminism, where it was like, I'm still going to go to work. I'm still going to function in this way. And what a great thing I have. I have formula where someone else can take care of my baby. My baby can go to daycare. You know, there were, there were all these layers, sociocultural layers that were also emerging in the 70s and 80s. Um, a lot of kids that were born in the 80s didn't breastfeed. Like it's, it was really, really common to formula feed. Wow. I wasn't breastfed. Yeah. I wasn't breastfed, pre, you know, everything I said before too, you know, emergency C-section premature. So, you know, I'm really happy you're having this conversation. It's, it, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's triggering me, but like, I'm this like, passionate Greek guy. So like, it gets me fucking angry too. And obviously anyone who knows me and the things that I speak about and talk about, like, this is just a subject that like, um, I don't know, I'm passionate about with the level of knowledge I have. I'm so blessed and honored that we're able to have both of you on here uh, to give your perspectives. And I'm also curious, like the differences between Australia and, and the US in terms of like hospital births or, or giving birth, like what's the, the zeitgeist in Australia versus the US? Like where are the similarities? What are the differences? Um, either, yeah. I mean, uh, Alyssa, if you wanna comment on that or Ayla, if there are any. Yeah, well, I think it's the same as what Ayla is describing here, um, just, the right support is not available to women in breastfeeding. Um, it's as simple as a proper latch um, as well as the connection to mother and baby, but um, we're not taught that, we're not shown that. I mean, I'm sure some, some people um, understand that, but what I found along the way as well is that um, women when they're younger, they're not told about the importance of um, 
keeping your natural breasts and not mucking with the system. So a lot of people have breast surgery, whether or not it's for, um, you know, uh, looks and, and all of that stuff, or, you know, necessary uh, surgery to improve your health. Um, I just, I just think that they're butchered. So if they had have known that this could affect their feeding journey later, they wouldn't have done it. But we're not educating young women. We're not educating um, women and young girls about the importance of nutrition and the benefits of breastfeeding um, before they make those important decisions. So I think, um, you know, breastfeeding is second to none. Breast milk is designed for your baby, antibodies, uh, immunity, absolutely everything. Um, so if women knew that, they wouldn't be just settling for formula. I feel like every woman can breastfeed um, and it's just being shown the way and having the right support. But when you've got convenience over, you know, natural, natural, everyone takes convenience if they don't know any better. And if the doctor that's um, prescribing this for you, oh, you can just do whatever you want, you know, calm your baby off. It takes work. It takes commitment. Um, to, to settle your baby, to nurture your baby. So I think everything that Ayla said to do with the US, um, but also I've noticed that in Australia is, you know, breast surgery has really affected the way people breastfeed and information around that should be provided also um, to young girls. Mm, I think um, one thing that's really popping up for me here now is like, how did they manipulate us? And I guess primarily women to believe that returning to their normal life as quickly as possible takes precedent over the work of actually now stepping into motherhood and being a mother. Like, how did they, how did they make them believe that going to work was more primary than the real work that they're being called to do after having birth as a human being, you know? Yeah, I think it's like the psyop of feminism, mm. you know, <laughs> just completely... Yeah that was one of the main players in dismantling um, the nuclear family and yeah. polarizing women into the masculine energy. So. Um, Inversion, huh? What'd you say, Joel? Inversion. Yeah. No. Upside down world. Yeah, man. Um, so real, real quickly, what do you think about uh, the term birthing person? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I mean, we might as well continue from the psyop of feminism to, <laughs> to uh, the complete uh, alteration of English language and how we refer to women. Where are the feminists there, you know? There's so many um, iterations of feminism. <clears throat> like, remember maybe six years ago, getting into some sort of debate, I guess, if that's what you want to call it, um, with someone because they were saying that... Um, it's that I was at home, like with the ball and chain that breastfeeding was like a ball and chain and that I had like my identity and my independence as a woman had been usurped by this basically control mechanism, which was a child, which is something that like the patriarchy has convinced me I'm supposed to do is birth children, right? And I was like, well, I actually just think that I'm an empowered, like for me, this is feminist to decide to stay home and not participate in the patriarchy. Like for me, 
this is this is feminism to decide that I'm going to raise a child that's going to make a difference in the world and I'm not going to give someone else <laughs> in a room you know I'm not going to give it up to a room full of 20 kids crawling around just so that I can go out and have a mediocre job you know like I I don't for me that's not empowerment and so I think it's just so different for everyone and um <laughs> I, I I still use the term birthing woman uh, you know, I, women give birth and, um, you know, it's, for me, it's this, you know, want to have your cake and eat it too, right. When it's convenient for you, you're a man, when it's convenient for you, you're a woman. Um, I don't think that, um, it's really, it's really fair to, to women to remove that title from them. Only a woman can give birth. And so when I'm in these birthing rooms and midwives are saying, oh, the birthing person, or I'm like, you know, what, what else are you going to take from us? Mm -hmm. You know, like what else, <laughs> this is uniquely ours. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a loaded uh, topic, but um, it's a strange time we're in yeah. when it comes to that. Definitely. Definitely. Alyssa, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I was just thinking about the fact that Ayla has a little girl and uh, Joel and I have two little girls. So the importance of, you know, strong women, educated women, empowered women raising the future generation of girls who will one day be birthing women and empowered mothers. And I think that's super important um, to normalise birth and to um, set them up for the future so that they raise their children, you know, the way nature intended it also. So I think it's a, a very important role to have the mother well and the mother not traumatized and the mother looked after um, because right. very often we're told, oh, the baby's here now, so you kind of don't matter anymore. But when you hold the mother and when you, you nurture the mother and the mother is in touch with themselves and in tune with themselves and nurtures themselves, so self-love, self-worth, then right. your whole family thrives. Um, so I think the system is really designed by separating mother and baby, separating families um, and surrounding birth in the home it's designed to, to create disconnect right from the very beginning. So if women knew that and understood how the processes work and we could keep it intact for our future generations, then it's just going to change the world. Um, so I think it's super important that we have strong, nurtured mothers and women. Yeah, and to that end, you know, removing the title of girl from your child's vocabulary is like you're basically conditioning them for self-rejection and self-hate right you know why do I have these parts what like why like you don't want to celebrate like it's like an encouragement not to celebrate the way that they were born mm. you know and it's and and that like that has resounding effects on their ability to interact with the world to create relationship with others when there is that self-hate that's being nurtured and encouraged by society yeah for men and women yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, in my view, self-hatred and self-masochism is at the root of everything that we're experiencing right now. You know what I mean? And that's why we're able to be manipulated, controlled and coerced to such a degree because without that self-love, 
we're not even comfortable within ourselves. You know, we, we're just looking for any Tom, Dick and Harry to tell us who we are. If it's even, even coming down to the most basic form of gender now, right? We're looking for that elsewhere. It's like, it's, it's, it's absolute in, insanity. Um, trust the experts, bro. Trust the experts, well, man. Trust the experts. <laughs> well, what's it? I, I received a message actually the other day. Um, how dare you be encouraging people to think for themselves? How dare you encourage people to do their own research? And I was like, but we all have been given our own brain to make our own decisions. So at what point do you stop trusting yourself? stop listening to yourself and outsourcing absolutely everything to everyone. This is what we're seeing on a mass scale, even right now, what's happening in the world. But it starts, you know, for girls and even men to be empowered around birth um, for that very reason, you know? So how dare I encourage someone to think for themselves? But like, yeah. I, it blows my mind. <laughs> to receive that message oh yeah no i see happening i see men walk into the birth room and they lose like the hospital for example and they lose all authority it's like their dick just disappears you know and they what yes doctor whatever you say like bow down to mommy medicine and in that in that moment the woman is like hey you're yeah. supposed to be here as gatekeeper and I've seen so many women in postpartum express resentment and feeling like they weren't supported by their husbands or their partners in that moment yeah. and people wonder why so many relationships and marriages crumble after birth it's not because you have a third party in the house it's because <laughs> there was a there was a telling moment right when it really mattered yeah. is the woman supported is she being held can she really trust this person to protect her and yeah. i've seen it happen often no the answer is no and so men really do have to be um, informed and educated about this process if they're going to walk into the lion's den which is the hospital mm -hmm. mm. you got to be informed you know yeah. you got to be informed in that regard and i mean it's, it's it's the one thing that men just want to run away from and shy away from it's one thing where men are thinking oh i've got enough responsibilities i don't need to take responsibility when it comes to you know what i mean the, the the birth of my child and what my what my wife is experiencing i don't need to inform myself and educate myself around that um like uh, like I, I know men that go go to the hospital birth and they want to get on the gas you know what i mean like they want the gas the same way the woman does like what the fuck is that all about you know like that's just that's sickening to me um one thing we experienced in in our birth was once our baby was born um and because they labeled it a traumatic birth or whatever and they wanted to you know what i mean to, to take take valley our daughter and um just run, run run some tests or whatever and then they pressured me on that point to try give her you mean the, the first couple doses of the waxing um and i said absolutely there's no way that that's taking place whatsoever you know and what they did from that point was they went to Alyssa because we were in separate rooms now. I was with Valley. They went to Alyssa and said, your husband's being negligible. And then they, they tried to play us against each other, right? Like how, how insane is that? And they said, we recommend that you do this. They didn't even accept my word, accept my stance in my power. They went to go to my wife to try and say, now your husband's being negligible. We think we recommend this. Like it's yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And at, at a woman's, sorry, at a no, most vulnerable that. time, yeah. you know, a mother is, well, meanwhile, I'm just being stitched up on the table. Um, you know, they're talking to me about 
injecting my child and going against what my husband says. But, you know, as a family, we knew where we stood. No one could break us, but it's going into that lion's den prepared. Mm. We were Mm -hmm. very prepared. I feel Joel and I were on the same page, um, but a lot of people don't have that. It's a luxury these days. It is a luxury. And so that's why we inform people around that the terms to use and and you don't want to portray yourself as being negligible at all you know you're not refusing but you're making different decisions at a and for a later time you know yep so yeah that's <laughs> what i tell all my clients just say yeah yeah i'll do it at the pediatrician's yeah, office yeah, yeah yeah oh no totally i know we're gonna go tomorrow it's like it's just this yeah. like sick game of manipulation that you have to navigate yeah. And who should be doing that at their birth? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, Joel, you can go. I was going to say, this, this is a good place to end the, end the first half. Um, thank you to our public um, audience for, for listening. Um, on the second part of this episode, we're going to get into the scandemic, how that's affected birth processes. We're going to get far deeper into, into vaccines. And let's start providing some empowering solutions as to how women can actually step into their power and recognize their innate power. And for any woman that's thinking about getting pregnant, having baby, how they can do that um, empowered during this time. Guys, thanks for listening to Here for the Truth to our patrons. We'll see you in a bit. All right, so our patrons and members, welcome back to the second half of this episode of Here for the Truth, where we're having an incredible discussion about the importance of natural birth and empowering women and uh, owning the rite of passage that that, that is birth. And for, for men as well, that's an experience for them too, you know. Um, it's obviously a crazy time in, in, in the world right now with this scandemic that's been taking place. Um, how, in your opinion, Ayla, has that affected the birth processes? Um, So actually I've noticed since March, 2020, this influx of women and couples who would have never considered birthing out of the hospital, suddenly wanting to birth out of the hospital. Um, And so for me, it was this instant kind of like infusion of empowerment and and opportunity for a, a, a serious pivot um, so I, I really, I just dove right into that, you know, and it was this opportunity that I saw for a lot of more conventional, um, women, you know, women who are conventionally minded, not that that's like better or worse in any way. It's just, they're in a conventional field. And for them to open up to this possibility was like, so exciting for me, um, to, to be able to build whatever type of bridge they needed to, to step into this new space. So I saw that on a personal level um, in a big way, and it's continuing now, um, even though I, you know, I feel like, I always feel like we're in the start of the pandemic, like every week, I'm like, this is just the beginning, you know, Um, but um, yeah, and, and, you know, in in the, on the larger scale, I have seen it kind of shift more people into fear generally, of course, that's the energy that we're in, right, this, this fear Mm -hmm. matrix, so I have seen a lot of women also become a little bit more, um, I don't know, anxious, a lot of more, you know, more preterm labors. I've definitely seen a lot more preterm labors, women going into labor early before their due date, high blood pressure, a lot of stress, um, clients of mine, students of mine who've chosen to vaccinate themselves while pregnant. A few of them have actually lost the pregnancies. So I have seen this other side um, emerging and 
yeah, it's been it's been wild. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you say that. That's something we talk about often. And what, what we're noticing in all fields is that what this what this has done is it's either presented people with an opportunity to step into more of an organic timeline, step deeper into authenticity and integrity, and listen and tune in to themselves. And for others, it's pushed them even further out into the, into the peer, into the fear paradigm. You know, um, yeah. so it's it's interesting that it it, it works both ways. Um, you know what I mean? Simultaneously. Um, yeah. yeah, Melissa, any commentary? Yeah, I'd have to say the same. You're seeing the the split in this area as well um, with women and the fear um, of being alone and unsupported. Up until recently, you weren't even allowed to have your partner in the birthing unit with you. So women are doing it on their own. They're separated from their other children. Their families are so disconnected. Um, and it really plays a big, a big part on how women recover and all of that. But I'm definitely seeing a lot more women also stepping into their power or asking questions. There must be a better way. There has to be a different way. Um, so yes, that's where my work has lied recently is um, talking about home birth and sharing my story and, and things like that so that women can make those informed decisions for themselves and their families. So you're seeing the fear and you're seeing the women really step up um, and making those changes, which is a positive thing as well. Yeah. And I mean, just the whole concept of isolation, right? Mm. Like how does, how does that play into like a birth you know like are, are women being separated from their babies because of because of coronavirus at birth is there any protocol that takes place in the hospital in that regard or yeah that was actually happening here in the u.s where um if the woman tested positive for the virus um sorry if no, she no. tested positive i'm just like if she tested positive yeah uh, my, my daughter know. my daughter goes like this the virus um <laughs> She's so funny, man. Um, so yeah, when they would test positive for the virus, they would then have their baby taken away from them immediately after the birth and the baby would be isolated and observed, <laughs> right? Wow. Like, I don't know who designed that system or what they were really looking for. So I had somehow produced, someone sent this to me. It was like an attorney randomly fell out of the heavens and sent this to me on Instagram and said, I want you to share this with as many people as possible. And it was just paperwork that basically stated um, under the law here in the US that, you know, I, I, I assume full responsibility for whatever happens for me keeping contact with my baby, even though I am coronavirus positive. And so I just started, people were contacting me by the hundreds and I was just emailing this out to everyone and they were just taking it with them to the hospital and using it. And um, that was last, yeah, like last August actually, it was when that was really, really happening. And I think now it's shifted a little bit. Um, as far as the protocol, I think now women are not wearing masks in some of the hospitals while they're birthing. Um, it, like that's shifted recently. Um, the, when, you know, when you arrive at the hospital, you have to take your test in the hospital and your husband has to wait outside until the results come back. If you test positive, he cannot come in with you. Um, hmm. Things like that, you know? So it's, yeah. that's what's kind of like going down right now. Um, I was- show. Yeah, I was recently banned from one of the hospitals here, but I just like can't keep my mouth shut anymore. And I like, 
I, I go wild. So it's okay. Cause I was calling in last year. I was saying like, I don't want to do hospital births anymore. Yeah. It's been too many years. And the, the universe is like, okay, you're going to go out with the bang. So I've just been like, yeah. Nice. Remember, remember, uh, was it last year that video that went viral of like the woman giving birth? And then there was like, she was wearing a mask and a visor and there was like saran wrap or something. What was that? Yeah. Oh, C-section, I think. Right? Is that what yeah. that was? Like, I don't know yeah. what was going on, but it just felt like it was. <laughs> With I the country like, music playing in the background. Maybe it just felt like it was yeah. like from some dystopian, like Hollywood <laughs> movie. Like I just felt like how far away are we removed from the natural connection? Um, and I can only imagine what does that do to a child that needs to connect and see their mother's face and, 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 and observe body language, even at that age, like what, what's going on? Like, how does that impact mother child relationship by being removed so quickly by not even being able to like see her face by not being able to have that skin to skin contact? Like, what are the repercussions of that? Alyssa, do ping pong back and forth. Um, yeah, definitely. Like a baby's nervous system um, is very reliant on the mother. You need to have them close at all times. Not only that, they regulate their emotions and they learn about the world and the safety of the world by their mother and their father's expressions. Um, so when they're not getting that closeness, when they're not um, smelling the mother, when they're not drinking breast milk, you know, they're lost. They're lost. And that connection from birth has just been, you know, destroyed. I think it, it can be repaired uh, if the work is done. But yeah, it's especially, I'm seeing it a lot in children, even um, with masks everywhere. You know, there are kids that just don't know what's going on. There's people with glasses on and face masks and, you know, they don't understand what's happening. No one can smile. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's really a crazy world out there. What are we teaching our children um, about? I, I always make it a point to share a smile. And yeah, um, yeah Joel and I have um, decided that it's just not on in our household, you know, and we explain to our children what's actually going on so that they understand this is not a normal thing. Mm. Um, so I think that yeah, if more people were aware of the detrimental effects to their children, a, a newborn, you know, they're just constantly looking. That's what a baby does. That's what they're designed to do. You're their safety. You know, if they're not getting that, what's missing? Yeah, I mean, I I have I have a history. I have hearing issues, so I think I've kind of learned to like look at people's like lips like naturally, and you know, being around people wearing masks is just such a weird thing for me. And I'm a grown man. I can only imagine like children from, you know, age zero to seven in really important developmental stages. Like, how are they developing? Like they can't, they can't read the facial cues, you know, how do they build empathy? Like, I'm, I'm so curious. Well, I mean, I have my own opinions, but I'm curious to think like, to hear what you both have to say, like 10, 15, 20 years down the road, like what do you think are the potential repercussions of children during these really important developmental stages in their life for a couple of years? One, living in extreme fear, depending on, you know, of course, coming from their parents, you know, and society, but two, like being masked up on a regular basis. Like, what do you think? Is there anything or is it just, um, yeah. 
So, like what I'm observing is that this is just kind of an extension of the, the epidemic of technology that's integrated into children's lives. You know, there's already been this rift for so many years. Um, and so for me, this may or may not really be affecting the age group of like eight to 18 as much as we think that it is. Uh, maybe this, maybe that's naive of me to say. Um, what I am noticing is that a child, you know, zero to seven who is, has not been inundated with technology, who's not been completely tainted by our social structures is relying like any animal relies it relies on looking at the mouth to understand where it's where it stands with the other animal right that's how animals can gauge dominance and submission is really through eye contact and also through the mouth and the teeth that's how they can assess danger and learning how to read the animal body so i think it's it's you know i i'm not a behavioral psychologist but i think that <laughs> ages zero to seven are being heavily affected by that. And like you guys, I've made such a point that in my household that this is not normal. It's not even a thing. It's not like she's never worn a mask. I don't wear a mask. Like I've taught her everything that I am teaching myself in this process. Um, and she's vocal about it, you know, and I think that's all that we really can do. <laughs> like she's like gone up to bat for me in public when people have said things to me, you know, um, about mask wearing and going into certain spaces without a mask and like she'll raise, you know, she'll definitely call it out and people are, you know, shocked. But I think that's the kind of, I mean, for me, that's important, you know, that's part of her finding her voice and she knows it's not normal. And when I, you know, look, if you look at Dr. Tronic's work, he does the still face experiment. Um, he did a lot of experiments and studies throughout the 80s, 90s, um, where children, their, their nervous system, like you said, would go into the sympathetic very quickly when their mother wouldn't make eye contact with them or when she would cover her mouth or only show half of her face. And children ages like 18 months to three and a half, which was his, ma his main age group of study, they would do all of these things, like jump through hoops, like you act as court jester to try to get the mother to respond. And when they couldn't see her mouth, they would go into like complete survival mode. And as soon as she would reveal her mouth, they would like their body language would change, they would disarm and they would completely calm down. And so if we just look at that work, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's pretty um, synonymous with what's going on right now. And it's undeniable. Yeah. So yeah, Dr. Yeah. Tronic's work really worth looking at. Cool. Well, I've just seen overnight, especially in a, oh, well, New South Wales, they've mandated masks at schools. So when children return in October, Ooh. all students have to wear masks. This is primary so school that? as well. This by the way, primary by the way. school. So young children, you know, um, it's just so, I just can't help, but obviously our children aren't in school. Um, we had decided long before this that we would homeschool our children. If not had made a decision then, it is definite now. And I've seen a lot of um, people pull their families out of school as well because of this. It's just not a normal thing. And I'm so glad so many people are standing up um, because you go to school, you create friendships, and then every school holidays here in Australia, you're isolated again. So it's creating, it's like very confusing. I couldn't imagine being a child at this time. I'm trying to, especially with Valley, she's very aware for a nearly three-year-old. So she asks questions.
questions. So I'm gauging what she's learning from this. And she's just like, mommy, they're wearing a mask. And it's like, she finds that weird also. So yeah, um, yeah I, what's, it happen, what's it doing to school? You know, school as we knew it is, is over. And I've noticed a lot of people um, really struggling to let that go because they think that we've had this amazing free upbringing, but really we've just been groomed from the beginning in the school system for this very time. Um, and you have to see it in a positive light because this is what's making us change and stand up. It's not okay anymore. And it's not okay for our children to be, you know, repeating the cycles. So you can look at it both ways. Um, yeah. I choose to see the positive. Right. I see it as a total mm. blessing that actually saved me from indoctrinating my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like this is actually an opportunity for a huge reset um, when it comes to how we educate our, our children. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And like, it's, it, you, you feel that, right? You feel the opportunity there for those that are awake and aware at this time. Like it's so fertile, that ground for us to actually return to smaller communities and to return to ancient ways of, of doing and being. Um, and it is, it is almost like an opportunity for reset in the positive reset right? from, from that perspective. I, I like that. Yeah. And you're forced as an adult, as a parent to actually define your values. And maybe you've right. never done that because now that you're responsible for the education of your child, you actually have to ask yourself like what matters to us Yeah. really? Yeah. And that's beautiful. And that's challenging. So but it so has to true. happen. Yeah, it's so true. Like that, collect, that collective spell has has broken to an extent. And now it's like, where do I stand as an as an individual? What are my what are my unshakable morals and values that you mean I'm gonna I'm gonna live and die by no matter what, no matter how things play out. Where's where's the boundary, right? We've all had to set set harder boundaries as well because of this. And I mean that's that's a positive thing. Definitely a lot of um, inner child healing as well and breaking those generational cycles. I'm noticing a lot within myself. It's just about being brave um, at this time. And once again, coming back to that place of knowing and of trust that we weren't taught, we weren't allowed to speak this, we weren't allowed to feel this. You have to be this way. And it's confusing a lot of people and it all it's all intertwined, but especially in birth as well. You know, it's undoing those, those patterns and breaking down those walls that um, restricts you from being brave and trusting yourself. Um, we don't know, but it's, you know, the fear of the unknown we have to be okay with and we have to accept. And when you're on this authentic path, you know, you're trying to do right by everyone, but it's, it starts from within as well. You know, it's all of breaking down those um, inner child wounds. So yeah it's it's scary and it's um but now's the time now's the time to do it for everyone for your children for yourself yeah we deserve what, that yeah. and what better place to start than birth right yeah like a natural empowered home birth would have to be in in my view the the number one beneficial thing that you could that you could offer at this point in time to yourself and to the future generations you mean and for your ancestors and for your descendants like making an empowered decision around that is everything. Well, definitely um, 
with the difference between our two births, uh, I had a two and a half hour labor at home and we popped out of the birth pool and straight onto our lounge. So the difference in environment that our two children were, were brought up in um, definitely plays a role you know the bright lights in a hospital everyone grabbing you touching you the first person to touch you when you're born should be your mother and um, that's something every every baby deserves so um, definitely an empowered home birth can heal all your past births also um, so I'm a big advocate for that um, so having my two polar opposites whilst I still think my first birth was incredible and amazing and I learned so much we're sent what we need at the time um, yeah you don't be afraid to heal and don't be afraid for it to be different every time um, it doesn't have to be that way that you you have known mm. you know so yeah Ayla I remember I don't know when it was somewhat recently you you made a post where you said no one except the mother should hold the baby for the first hour hour was it hour or was it more than that uh, yeah it was hour and i'm i'm curious to know why <laughs> um joel's like fuck that shit i'm coming in at four yeah. five minutes <laughs> um, <laughs> it was more like a boundary that i wanted to create to give the woman um permission to decide whatever time she wanted cool. right and so the statement was really like this is this is a boundary this is a framework and knowing that you can create a framework is the first step and now you can decide if it's 10 minutes if it's 30 minutes if it's five hours if it's however long yeah whatever it is um, so that statement was really just to kind of shock the system so that women could think about that a little bit differently. And there was a lot of feedback because some people are like, wow, I felt that I wanted that. And my baby was taken from me. And I remember, you know, holding my arms up and I just kept repeating, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Women have that experience where the body's like in this mm -hmm. euphoria and their brain can't quite rationalize what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of women did respond with that. Um, you know, at least a dozen women wrote to me about that. So yeah, and, and, and like we mentioned before, it's the chemical skin imprinting. There's this window, right? When the baby comes out, babies are reliant on smell and sound. So they're looking for anchors like the mother's heartbeat or the father's heartbeat. So if the parents were sleeping in the same bed during the pregnancy, the baby's gonna be able to recognize the father's heartbeat out of the womb. The father's voice, the mother's voice, the mother's smell they're not seeing clearly, they're seeing black and white or gray and they're seeing shapes. So they're not relying on, on sight. They're not like looking at you and saying, oh, there you are, mom. Yeah. You know, it's all, it's all smell and sound and sensation, physical sensation. So um, we really don't want to interrupt that. And there's no need to, unless there's some really, you know, rare emergency then you need assistance no one else needs to touch the baby there's a great film called birth in the squatting position you can find it on youtube um if you take my class i have the full length film it's really amazing and each woman is catching her baby she's in a squatting position and she's catching her baby you do see from time to time you know the the doctor in the room just kind of having their hand under the head but not really touching it just to make sure that the baby doesn't you know 
shoot out because sometimes they do once once the shoulders come out sometimes they really go kind of far so it's just like a precaution there you know just so that it doesn't go flying um, but the women really are the ones who have that first interaction and what i like to encourage people to do is to not cut the cord and leave the placenta and the baby attached and that's a way to deter anyone from messing around with the baby because then there's this whole package that they would have to carry. So a way to really ensure that for yourself at the hospital, for example, is to just not cut the cord for however long you don't want people. And can you talk, can, can either of you um, talk about the benefits of, of not cutting the cord? I know that's something that's done often. Um, yeah, well, delayed cord clamping is a super beneficial. Um, the baby gets all of its iron, its oxygen, the blood, uh, stem cells, um, which are, are really essential. Um, it can also help resuscitate a baby. But what they do, they, in a hospital, they rip it out or they'll cut it straight away to take the baby away. But you should really be waiting um, for the cord to go white and to go limp. And all of those essential nutrients are designed for the baby's body at the time of birth. Um, so yeah, delayed cord clamping, I couldn't recommend enough. And like Ayla said, it creates that boundary. Um, obviously they say, oh, it depends what emergency we're in at the time and things like that. But what they don't know, or they do know is that it can resuscitate a baby. It's got all of the oxygen um, that the baby needs and yeah, I think Ayla did a post, was it Ayla's post recently about um, delayed cord clamping as well? Yeah, I um, I don't, yeah. I mean, so many people ask me about cord blood banking. Do they do that in Australia? Uh, where um, you, they extract um, cord blood immediately after the birth and then they bank it and you pay a lot of money every year to have the baby's cord blood banked at some undisclosed location. And in the future, you could potentially use the stem cells to assist with any kind of diseases of the blood, like leukemia or something like that. And so it's this fad, like you walk into the doctor's office and you get close to the end of the pregnancy and they're like, have you considered cord blood banking, right? Because everybody gets a cut, you know, if you've gotten, if you sign up, that OB is going to get... Um, a cut from that because it's a lot of money. It's a big investment. But the issue with that is I don't think there's enough evidence to show that it's really doing anything. It's a lot of money. I don't know what that cord blood is being used for. I don't know if part of it's being harvested. I don't, you know, I have no idea. And what happens is that when you do cord blood banking, you have to clamp the cord immediately. So the baby's not getting all of that life force back to it all the blood that's in the cord, additional blood that's pumping from the placenta is not going back to the baby. So we see baby with lower blood volume, low, lower iron levels and low oxygen count. So when they check the baby's oxygen after the birth, you know, and they're like 80%, they're like, this baby doesn't have oxygen. We need to observe it in the NICU. You're gonna have to be there another two days until the baby's cleared. So potentially this could be another scenario where it's just, more of an opportunity to extract money from insurance companies, right? Yeah. Um, so in the situation of resuscitating a baby, if the baby's not breathing and it's been a significant amount of time, uh, particularly in Asia, this has been a practice that's ancient. Um, they would actually put the placenta in hot water and massage it very vigorously to try to move blood and chi back to the baby and babies would actually become responsive at that point. 
But what they do in the hospitals is that they'll, if the baby's not responsive, they'll immediately clamp the cord, you know, they'll smack it, they'll rub the back, they'll do traditional CPR, you know, mouth to mouth resuscitation, which doesn't really work the same way as it would with a more developed baby or toddler or an adult. Sure, that's so. not traumatizing at all. <laughs> um, so on, on top of all that, I'm really curious, like, in terms of more like conventional allopathic practices, when you think of standard practices that go on every single childbirth, what don't you agree with? Like, what do you think shouldn't be done that's being done? Like whether it's vitamin K shot, whether it's like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, like where do you go? Like, nah, fuck that shit. I ain't about that life. Big question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Where do we start? Well, yeah. Let's go everywhere. I mean, we, now we're going to venture into territory because I obviously want to bring up a topic mm. that is really important and has become more important because that one word that's been on the top of people's tongues for the last like 15 months um, that's making people think about them in general is vaccines. So, yeah. you know, go wherever you want to go. Um, I don't know about you, Lisa, but I get so many people who are like, I'm on a natural birth. I don't want to vaccinate. I don't want vitamin K. I don't want this. I don't want that, but I'm going to go to the hospital just to be safe. So that's like the most common thing that I get. And so for me, it all starts with removing the duality that exists within the woman and within that family dynamic, yeah. right? I want this, but I have to do it this way. Right. So you're existing in two realities. So it's about removing the duality first. And then from there, you can really get to the core of what you want. Because once the woman removes that duality, she's not interested in all of the procedures that the medical industrial complex has to offer. It's almost like she kind of wakes up and says, oh, once I understand that my baby's not inherently ill and I don't need to treat it as such, then I'm kind of freed from this whole situation and they have a very low intervention birth because even having a midwife at your birth is considered an intervention yeah right a, a, a non-intervention birth is like going into labor in your house and walking out into your garden alone squatting and having a baby that's zero intervention but you have a midwife there that's one intervention listening to the baby's heartbeat that's an intervention uh, i'm not saying it's good or bad it is what it is but that is an intervention so you have to just see where your trust falls in the whole process. And yeah. some people have very little trust in the process. So who am I to say what they should and shouldn't do, should or shouldn't do? Uh, me personally, I, I wouldn't do a free birth. I don't, I don't, that's not for me. What's that? Free birth is when you have no medical attendant. So you wouldn't have a midwife. You wouldn't have anyone there except whoever you live with, you know, your husband and your home. You can do it anywhere. Um, I, I think women need to be in a state of complete surrender. I know myself personally, and to be in surrender, I'm not going to be problem solving and I'm not going to be in the masculine dealing with logistics. That's why I would want a midwife there and a really hands-off midwife. I wouldn't even want her to check me. I would just want her to like, do crossword puzzles in the other room, but it gives me the peace of mind that I don't need to solution a complicated, like what if the, you know, the baby has shoulder dystocia, right? Baby's shoulder gets stuck on the pubic bone. I don't want to have to worry about finding a solution for that. I want to be in surrender and euphoria and ecstasy, which is what birth can be. So 
Um, and from then on, I think all the newborn procedures that are done are, you know, are hogwash, you know, for me personally, I think it's all just unnecessary. Um, but some of those things help people sleep at night and that's just where they're at in, which, in their which procedures are you referring to? I'm referring to the PKU heel prick, which is okay. looking for an amino acid. Um, I'm referring to vitamin K shot, which is a blood coagulant. Um, referring to the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, I'm referring to even weighing the baby. Yeah. I'm referring to um, anything that would interfere with the baby bonding with the mother. And um, even cutting the cord at this point, I think I would do a full lotus birth. You know, um, that is the, the placenta is the baby's first mother. It's what the baby was looking at in the womb. It's, it's, it's the second sound that the baby was completely enveloped in besides the mother's heartbeat. And so I would personally just allow that to disintegrate on its own through a lotus birth. You know, so I would just do whatever, for, as far as the newborn procedures go, I would do whatever I would do if I had just myself and the baby out in the woods with no, <laughs> no devices. Um, because I believe in the body's innate intelligence to heal and to regenerate. And I believe in the design. Yeah. And yeah. real quickly, do you think that that may be why we've moved away from this or why it's more challenging or more issues um, maybe could prop up or come up is that just in general, we've become so disconnected from nature and our bodies, et cetera. So it's almost like you need, you definitely need support as opposed to like maybe 50 hundred years ago or whatever it is where you're like walking in the forest and baby just plops out. You know what I mean? Which I did. My mom told me a story that her younger, her youngest brother that like her mom was just like walking up the steps and he just like fell out. So well, I, 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 don't know. I, I fell out in the car on the way to the hospital. That explains everything. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to say. Hey, dude, I was, Makes sense. Uh, I was so close to making that comment when you were telling us your sob story about your birth, but I held back. So I got you next time. Well, Come dude, on. you know, you can't, bro. You, you're here for the truth. You got to pop, pop it. <laughs> you're, you're crying though. So that's all right. Oh, I love it. It's true. Uh, it's true. <laughs> Vitamin K is an interesting one because even like a lot of quote unquote anti-vaxxers that I see, they're still like, oh, but the vitamin K shot. It's like, what the, what, what, are, you, what are you even thinking? You know, but so can you break down vitamin K for us? Why it's just simply a no-go and why people need to wake the fuck up around that? Well, it has a black box warning. So one of the known side effects is death, uh, specifically fetal gasping syndrome, which is basically a seizure of the lungs. And um, it's a practice that started actually during the knock them out, drag them out era of birth, which was like the 1940s, basically, um, when women were being knocked out, babies were being dragged out. And so babies were experiencing what I would call violent births. They were being extracted with forceps. Um, they hadn't started using vacuums yet, but they were primarily using forceps. So babies were dealing with a lot of internal bleeding and bruising in the skull. So they had to inject them with vitamin K so that the babies wouldn't hemorrhage mm. after their traumatic birth. Mm -hmm. So it's a practice that really um, started because of those, those violent births that were happening. Um, and then it just became commonplace. And a lot of people choose to circumcise their babies at the hospital after the birth. It's like, let's just get it all done while we're here. Let's just have it on one bill, you know? Yeah. So if you're choosing to circumcise your child, um, immediately after the birth or within a few days, and it doesn't have its own blood clot factor, 
I guess you're going to want to take the risk and inject it with vitamin K to make sure that your baby doesn't bleed out. So your options are baby bleeding out or fetal gasping syndrome or a host of other potential side effects. And it's misleading because of the word vitamin. Yeah, yeah. But, but aren't there other options in terms of the injection? Isn't there like drops or things you could take that don't have uh, aluminum in it? Yeah, there are oral drops. Um, they say that they're not as effective. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't okay. know. Um, so never... in, um, if, if there is bleeding in a traumatic birth, does the actual vitamin K injection they offer serve a purpose towards preventing blood clotting or helping that issue? Yeah. So because the, ble- the baby's blood will not clot on its own, yeah. um, you know, when people have this concern where they're on the fence about vitamin K, I, I just present them with that oppor- that option. And I say, look, if, if the baby does experience a really traumatic birth, yeah. vacuum, force up, um, you know, whatever the case may be, yeah. consider it as an option or, or don't and just observe the baby. Uh, you yeah. know, that's something that you really have to decide, you know, as, as a parent, uh, what, where, where you want to go with the risk. Um, typically you're not going to encounter that at a home birth. They don't have those tools. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not going to get an episiotomy and your baby extracted with a vacuum at a home birth. So that's another way of decreasing the possibility of having to make that decision. Yeah, definitely. Just don't go to the hospital. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what we're saying is that obviously, but just to, to nail it in a home birth is safer than a hospital birth for all intents and purposes. Yeah, a, a midwife who's done, you know, say a thousand births in 20 years, maybe has like a 0.09% C-section rate, meaning nine of her clients maybe have had life-threatening um, emergencies that required a C-section. Maybe, you know, this is just a guess based on midwives I know here, whereas an OB has a 60% C-section rate, right? So out of a thousand women. So that's already telling you like more women are having C-sections with OBs. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> um, and people need to understand that with the home birth, you're going to get a risk assessment to even get midwifery care. And if you're high risk by any means, they're not going to accept you into their care. You're just not a candidate. So you've already eliminated possibility of something going wrong based on your health or a medical condition. From there, it's a matter of building endurance, strength, being educated, understanding the process, trusting the process, being in good care, surrendering, and and moving forward from there. I've I've been at two transfers in eight years, and neither of them were life threatening. I'm not saying that they don't happen. I'm just saying that in my experience, in my small petri dish of a world, uh, it was really only two transfers, and they were casual. It was like we've reached a breaking point, and we need to now go to the hospital, right? Yeah. Would you consider your transfer an emergency, like a life-threatening emergency, or it was a decision that you made based on how things had lined up so far at that point? Yeah, definitely, um, definitely not an emergency. Definitely as a precautionary measure, and right. we we pushed it right to the last minute. And we just decided, I gave my consent. I decided what happened to me. So already I didn't want to go to the hospital. Obviously you have to be flexible in your your plans um, because 
it's, it is unpredictable sometimes. Um, so we did decide that just because things weren't moving along and I was working really hard. Um, so Valley ended up being born um, with a deflex posterior with a deflex head. So mm. she wasn't coming through the birth canal. Um, yeah, she, so that's what made it tough um, yeah. for me. Yeah. And so we're glad that we went and we're glad we had that experience and she was born safely. I wouldn't consider it an emergency. And right. I get that question a lot. Oh, I can't have a home birth because what if she bleeds out? And what if the, and it's always worst case scenario, but when you eliminate those interventions and the spiral of intervention, um, those risks are dramatically decreased. And your midwife, um, you most of the time, yes, just go for precautionary measures. You're not rushed into this. And, but once you're in the hands of the hospital, it could be a different story, you know, and lucky we were there to save your baby. Right, but look right. at all the stuff you did beforehand that caused all of this, you know. It's just about being aware and coming back to wanting a natural birth. Um, why do you hire a trained surgeon for your natural birth? People, I'm talking about an OB, um, people that are very rarely seen live, natural, undisturbed psychological birth is not someone you should hire if you want a natural birth outcome. Um, so I think that's an important thing for women to think about um, because a lot of the time now it's considered a natural birth just coming through the vaginal canal. But when you have intervention, epidural is not part of a natural birth. You know, you're, you're completely drugged. Your baby is drugged. You know, all of these things, needles in you, um, monitoring, all of that is not part of a natural birth. And I know little bits and pieces happen in a home birth. But yeah, um, women need to really, really, like you said, um, create the separation between I need this and I, but I need to do it this way because this is what people tell me and this is what I've been taught and this is what people project onto me um, and deciding for themselves which direction they want to go and knowing that path. So that's what I help women a lot with, understanding that, um, you know, questions to ask. And, and things, you're interviewing your birth team. You don't just go to someone and hire those people um, because they know this way. It's, you have to feel comfortable with those people. You need to feel aligned. They're your friends, they're your best friends at the end of this whole thing. Um, your midwives are like your mothers. And yeah, so it's a different, you don't just go to an OB's appointment. Now, oh, yeah, we'll do it this way. You know, there's a lot, to think about um, on this journey. And I, I find it, you know, we see, I see it a lot. You know, people worry about what carrier they're going to have, what pram they're going to get, all the clothes and all the baby's fashion and all of this stuff. But what about how the baby is born and how the baby is brought into this world and how well you are supported at the end of it? Because that's what matters, you know, not, not what cot they've got and the latest trend, you know. So... Yeah, it's, it's really deciding um, the outcome you want, especially during this time, you know, we're setting the precedent. Yeah. It would have to be the, 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 the number one thing that has, they've perpetuated so much fear around, right? Like most people just don't want to know about the birth process at all. The moment some, someone's pregnant, they just think they're going to wait nine months, then there's going to be a blur. Something's going to happen. There's this, this uncertainty. 
and then they're going to have the baby and they'll never have to think about that blur transition again. You know what I mean? It's almost like it's just been whitewashed from us psychologically to the point where like we can't even begin to understand that process and actually being present for that process in any, any real kind of way. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fear. That's fear that, you know what I mean? Like how, do, how does, how does even like the, the, the mothers, the previous, like your mother's fear come into that? You mean, or the, or the, the mother of the mother that's now birthing, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's obviously passed on as well through that process. Oh, totally. And we're, we're such a dis, we're so dissociated as a society, right? Growing up as children, when we'd experience an event, very rarely was there anyone to help us integrate that and to self-regulate and to co-regulate. No one taught us that. So we just move through the world in this disassociated state. And then when it gets to birth, we just exist in that disassociated in denial, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to be pregnant for nine months. There's going to be a blur, like you said, Mm -hmm. and now I'm going to have this like accessory. And then from there, I'm also going to figure out a way to not really integrate into that either because it's a lot to face when you're raising a child, because everything that you grew up with, your relationship with your parents, your relationship to self is called into question and you're confronted by it. And that's what child rearing is. And that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're coming you know, to the end. We can keep talking a bit, but there's a few couple of subjects that I want to, I want to hear your uh, opinions on um first off vaccines yes no maybe um well, like what are your thoughts on that and also from your experience how much do pediatricians actually know about vaccines how much education do they get in medical school on the subject oh <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Um, No, a definite not. Uh, I trust myself. I trust my immune system. I trust my baby's body. I trust the fact that we've been given everything we've ever needed. um, And I don't tamper with that process. I think it's a very dangerous thing. Um, I have done lengthy research into this topic and Mostly, I think people just need to believe mothers and families and people that have suffered from the adverse reactions and death of their family from these weapons. Um, I urge everyone to question and um, know where they stand on this so that you know, in your vulnerable state, you can't be separated and um, no one can interfere with your family unit. I think that's one thing Joel and I did going into our first birth, you know, we were armed with that. But question everything. Um, No, pediatricians, most doctors don't know the ingredients in that needle. They don't. Um, And I think the information out there is confusing. It's misleading. It's very skewed in the way of the medical industry. It is a money-making scheme. Um, And we simply don't need it. I'm just going to say it. Um, It causes more problems than any benefits. And anyone who's ever been uh, vaccinated is technically injured. So I'm assuming we are all um, (laughs) vaccine injured. And that's where disease stems. 
So yeah, if you understand that, I think you would really question it. Things like vitamin K, vitamin is a definite misleading word. Um, and I get that question a lot. What about this? What about that? I think it's trusting the process, trusting that your baby is born with everything that they need. Um, I help women a lot to overcome the fear and stand in their power when they're being pressured and coerced into these decisions. I think it's important to reiterate to every woman that they need to stand in their power and to trust that inner knowing and that, that intuition. Because most of the time when people come to me, they're like, I don't feel like I want to do this. Or I'm being very pressured by my OB or this and that. And especially with the COVID vaccine now affecting, um, oh, they're saying that it's you know going to affect women pregnant women and their babies on a large scale, it's creating that extra layer of fear, something they didn't have to consider before. And um, it's untested, especially specifically this COVID vaccine, it's not tested. And I saw something the other day, it's written in plain sight, but we just need to know where to look. The final testing won't be done till 2025. So are you being um, a lab rat? for these governments that are just testing this on you and your baby. I don't think so. That's not okay with me. And it's not okay with a lot of people, but they just don't know how to word it and, and work their way around it and get out of this. You know, you're placed with a lot of pressure and a lot of fear um, at every single turn. And it shouldn't be that way. Well, so, no, no vaccine has been properly tested during pregnancy, right? That's, yeah, yeah. That's my knowledge. Is that correct, Ayla? Yeah, there, none. Mm -mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's something that I recently learned about in the last few months were all of the Chinese human studies. They're called CHS, where the Chinese, before they were bought out by pharma in the 90s, did a, a lengthy this whole lengthy process on um, examining fetal tissue after it had been exposed to ultrasound technology. So I don't doubt that somewhere <laughs> we could probably find um, similar testing with vaccinations that the Chinese were doing independently because it seems like as I uncover this more, um, I'm finding out that a lot, um, it was women who were actually intending to have a miscarriage subjected themselves to this, these studies. Uh, sorry, an abortion, they were intending to have I always confuse the two because I'm so um, they were intending to have an abortion. So they decided right. to subject them, themselves to these studies. They signed up for them. And so I'm finding out that they were doing pharmaceutical studies on pregnant women. Um, obviously, the babies never went full term. They just simply studied the fetal tissue after the baby had been aborted. So maybe there's something there. But yeah, as far as vaccines now um, in the US and in Europe and Australia, I imagine that there are no studies um, that I've come across. Yeah. But you will hear many OBs say, you know, you're pregnant, get the DTaP shot, then you're going to pass the immunity to your baby. And then once the baby's out, the pediatrician's saying, now the baby needs to get the DTaP shot. And then the women are saying, but I got it during pregnancy. I was told it was going to get passed to the baby. And they're like, well, now it's, it's weakened and you have to do it again. <laughs> you know? So it's like women are just being corralled like cattle through yeah. this process. And again, like birth interventions, uh, the fentanyl, the lidocaine that's in the epidural, all of those interventions, 
It's just creating another cash cow for pharma, which is what vaccines are doing, just creating a very sick population that they can rely on to continue producing revenue. Mm -hmm. I find that, well, just on that is, um, you know, you, you blatantly give your trust you're expected to give your trust to someone that doesn't know the ingredients, but you know, women are advised not to drink coffee. Women are advised not to take regular painkillers during pregnancy. Um, you can't even eat certain nutrient dense foods that would help your, your pregnancy flourish and your baby thrive, but injecting it straight into your body, like that's not going to cross the placenta as well. It's, it's very confusing and conflicting information um, and yeah. I do urge people to, to think critically and make those decisions for themselves, um, but stand in their power, you know, um, you are the only advocate for you and your family and your baby. No one else really, really cares as much as you ever will. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important to remember. Yeah. It's your responsibility. Yeah. And Nerasmus, you asked about how much training do pediatricians really have in immunology? Not very much. <laughs> it's like they study it for one semester unless they're going to go in specifically into immunology. Um, but one of the, you know, I'm, I know many pediatricians here in Miami and one of them is actually a family friend. And he's like, yeah, I mean, honestly, I really shouldn't be the one administering these, you know, mm -hmm. like he, he really feels that way. And he actually expressed to me a few years ago that the health department comes in to audit his office and all pediatricians offices, and they'll just go through random files of patients and they'll see who has been vaccinated according to the CDC schedule and who hasn't. And that there's a certain amount of patients that haven't been that business, that practice could get flagged and closed down and they could no longer practice. So they're in a situation where they have to peddle these vaccines in order to stay afloat and keep their livelihood. So I think at a certain point, you know, they, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. They've made a commitment, right, to Rockefeller medicine. So, no. I mean, that's been my experience through, through my years of investigation is that, you know, MDs, they just, they don't get the proper education, you know, the proper education in toxicology, the proper education, adverse events and, and what to notice, you know, that's the big thing, even with VAERS, you know, VAERS isn't, unfortunately in the US, it's, it's the best we got, but it's not a great system, you know, and from my experience, you know, there was a study, I think it was 11 years ago, where they came to the um, conclusion that less than 1% of adverse events were even reported. And that information was sent to the CDC and the CDC just kind of ignored it. And so there was an opportunity to overhaul the system to be able to, um, you know, monitor what's going on with these, with these uh, shots. And it was just kind of, it just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. And, and that's just, that's just a shame, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it, and even with VAERS, I, I, people don't even know what, many people don't even know what that is. I think they know now more so because of this whole COVID thing and people talk about it more for years. People had no clue. Nurses don't know about it. Doctors don't know about it um, to a certain degree. So anyways, just curious that, your thoughts on all that. And that less than 1% has resulted in $4 billion being paid out or 4 billion plus, you mean? Imagine if that was an actual 1% or 50% or 60%, right? Yeah. And what is it now? I think in, in Australia, we're talking about 72 doses before the age of 18. Like yeah, same level. here. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think it's just about um, having the choice. You know, it shouldn't be like um, Ayla said about vitamin K, you know, it may be necessary in some instances, but it's knowing and discerning for yourself 
when you feel that necessary. I don't think it should be applied to every single case because every single birth and every single situation is not the same. So I think it's about having full transparent um, information mm -hmm. um, and making being able to make your own choices about what you put into your body and into your baby. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, yeah. and that's where we're, that's, you know, one of the main conversations we're dealing with right now is, I mean, at the end of the day, like I'm cool with the person making whatever choice they want to make, you know, yeah. if you feel safer by getting, by following the schedule, then, you know, you're, you're free to do that. I, I, I personally wouldn't. And, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge we're facing and that parents are facing, you know, in, in California, you know, you, your child can't even go to school unless they're, they're following certain protocols. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's where it gets to be a little like sketchy slippery soap where I'm like, no, like if I want to do this, cool. If not, then uh, I should have the right to do that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And it just gets difficult when we reach that point because people who consciously choose to vaccinate are, are expecting everyone else to, because they believe in germ theory mm -hmm. and they believe it's So it's really just this um, dyad of, of a belief system you know, and so when people say like, you need to do this, like all of pandemic, it's like all I hear, it's like, you need to do this yeah. to protect other people. You know, it's like in, in the US that is like the liberal slogan of the left. It's like protect, to protect my, you know, to protect others, you have to vaccinate yourself. And it becomes this like social justice thing. And um, yeah. it's not a matter of that. You know, I, I, if I, we would first have to both believe in the same thing to even have this conversation and we just don't <laughs> like yeah. i don't believe in communicable disease but yeah. most people do so that's really where the rub lies yeah that's 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 my whole thing too is that like i'm not even playing in the same sphere we can't even have the same yeah. conversation even even some of these mds and phds that are like questioning the vaccine but then they're making their arguments still under the guise of germ theory and so for me i'm like okay well you know, most people are playing in that field. So I still on some level applaud that these people are speaking out. But then for me, I'm like, but I'm not, we're, we're just playing a completely different game. Like I, I can't, I can't go there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would first have to believe that this is actually going to come into my body and harm me to even get into this conversation about vaccinations Definitely. with you. So that's really where it, it is. It's like a fundamental um, philosophical difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. well on your you got that question ready mate well yeah i mean you, let's just let's just finish it off with this which is uh you know ayla you and i have had conversations on this and this is an issue that joel you and i have spoken about and it's something that's really near and dear to my heart and and uh has brought plenty of emotions uh up for me and it's the topic it's the uh, topic of circumcision and so why is that something that's still being done? Should like, just fucking talk to me. Like, why are we <laughs> mutilating our baby boys? It's part of the fear matrix again, you know, and it's also, um, it's mimicry and what in biology, what we call mimicry, right? Where if we don't do something that everyone else is doing, we'll be ostracized and we'll be, thrown out in the cold and we'll die, right? So it's just this fear of not belonging as well. And I've had numerous clients, I don't know about you, Alyssa, but because it's maybe different in Australia, but 
it is yeah they'll say to me like oh we're gonna do it because my husband you know what x whatever his name is you know he's circumcised and he just he just really doesn't want our son to look different than him and we don't you know it's like how's he gonna he doesn't know how to how to clean he has no hygiene for an uncircumcised penis so it's like what what are we gonna do i'm like really you know that's the the reason to generally mutilate your child so i get that that. you know i have religious clients as well who are jewish you know i don't touch the subject of religion i don't debate it with them it's not where Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go but for people everyone else who's doing it um for you know well i just i thought that's what you do what do you mean it's dirty right so then there's education that has to happen around hygiene around germs <laughs> around understanding that the function and the important role that foreskin plays in not only his health but the health between him and his partner once he becomes sexually active so there's education that the mother has to do it's her responsibility the father's responsibility there's like ego at play um and there's also all the conditioning that we have from pornography where we're just watching these you know circumcised penises and these like cleanly shaven hairless vaginas vulvas interact and that's what we grow up thinking that it's supposed to look like and be like and feel like so there's so much that's informing this and then of course you know you have the doctor who's like oh when are we scheduling the circumcision mm-hmm. do you from my experience um, or my research that parents usually aren't in the room while this is happening like unless it's like religious like obviously during a bris or something but like in the hospital they're not like rolling up in there uh while the baby's being placed in the torture chamber uh the torture whatever it's called the little straps being put on and then you know the whole thing goes on or or am i mistaken the worst part is is that they don't want to be in the room because they know what they're doing they don't i've heard people say i don't want to hear the baby scream i don't want to see it so you're subjecting your child to this and you're not even accepting responsibility for it. No. They know. So you're you're so. giving your baby away to go be to be surgically tampered with and, and mutilated. And then you're leaving that baby alone to deal with a choice that you've made on behalf of that baby. And then simply choosing not even to be there as a support for a decision which you made for another being to mm-hmm. that the, is harmful to them like that's just unconscious beyond comprehension and then it gets worse because people will say he was so good he didn't even oh, cry yeah. and i'm like that's called he, shock yeah disassociation yeah, he fell asleep yeah if he, he passed out oh he's sleeping now and then what happens is the baby gets home and you know it's in a wet diaper where it's pooping it's peeing and it's in moisture and people are not using cloth diapers which i don't recommend disposable diapers but that's a whole other conversation and so they're in these disposable diapers sitting in their urine how is this ever supposed to heal and every time they're lying on their bellies they're uncomfortable they try to breastfeed on their mothers and it's uncomfortable to be on her abdomen because it's putting pressure on the site where the foreskin was removed. And then women are wondering why their babies can't breastfeed. And then they have to supplement with formula. You know, it, it just, it goes into this whole spiral effect and no one is making the connection that it's because they, there was a genital mutilation that took place. And they'll just say, well, the baby just mm-hmm. didn't like breast milk. I just had to bottle feed it. 
bottle feeding was easier because it didn't have to put pressure on its penis to breastfeed. You know, it just it's disturbing to me. It gets me angry. Um, I mean, you know, there was a there's a book called Hidden Circumcision or Circumcision: The Hidden Trauma by Dr. Ronald Goldman. You have it on your desk. There you go. Really good, really good time over here. Um, and I believe it was up until the 80s that the kind of standard understanding amongst medical professionals were that babies don't feel pain. Is that correct? Like they just they didn't feel pain. Like, so yeah, it's okay. We could do this. They're not, eh, don't worry about it. They don't feel it or they won't remember it or whatever the case may be. I have to interject for just a moment. The Chinese human studies I was telling you about where they, they observed fetal tissue after the abortion, they've noticed elevated cortisol levels that should not exist in that aborted tissue which would lead you to believe that even a baby at 12 weeks, six weeks is feeling pain from the abortion. Wow. So they do it's, feel it's, pain. Yeah, it's just, it's just mind blowing. So, sorry, I, I just had to like throw oh, that in there because it's away, like, please. relevant. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so relevant. And um, there sorry. was an article, sorry. No, I was saying there's an article that was going around where I think this, this nurse uh, she worked in the hospital. She, you know, she didn't want to circumcise, but the husband was adamant. So she decided to volunteer her child for a study where they did brain scan on the baby before um, circumcision, during it, and after it. And that they found out that like the structure of the brain changed, mm. and that a month later they tested it again, and it had remained changed. So it's like alteration to brain activity that perhaps it's permanent. I don't know, but it was, you know, it's an only a one-time thing. I don't know if they like line people up. Let's try to do this study multiple times. I'm not, you know, it's, I'm not fully aware of that, but again, the repercussions of that, you know, we don't know. Yeah. I was just going to say, just to, just to close it off, like where, what is the whole it's cleaner? Where, where is that even coming from? Is that simply because you don't have to clean that skin anymore? Like, I don't understand that even from a religious point of view, is, isn't there, isn't there MO that it's, it's cleaner, isn't that like, I'm not sure if we can just clarify that. Yeah, the, so the big idea is that it prevents the spread or it, it lowers the probability of spread of sexually transmitted diseases or infections. And that um, smegma, which is what can build up under the foreskin, you know, doesn't have an opportunity to build up and there are no opportunities for yeast infections to build up. So yeast infections come from the gut. People just need to understand that first and foremost in both men and women. And so there's, a, just, there's just a gross misunderstanding of it's, it's a symptom of a larger issue within the body and it's being expressed on the penis. It's not because of the foreskin. So it's just like a, a disconnect. And um, the education that happens around that, you know, most birth classes don't talk about circumcision. They don't talk about foreskin. They don't talk about how, they don't teach anyone how to clean the child's foreskin. So that's something that's really lacking. Um, I decided to go rogue with my own type of childbirth education method because I wanted to talk about vaccines. I wanted to talk about circumcision. I wanted to talk about placentas and I wanted to talk about the father's role in this whole process. And I wanted to use the word man and I wanted to use the word woman freely. So I designed my own, my own process, my own system because it is, it's the most common cosmetic surgery in America. 
is circumcision. There's a whole industry around it too. They sell that shit off. Like, yeah, let's put a little (laughs) face cream on. Yeah, I'm going to- Is this the third part of the podcast where we go into the Illuminati? I'm just wondering. <laughs> I don't know. We'll bring you. We'll bring you back, and we could talk about that okay. for sure. Part three. That that'll okay. be for our top tier members of patrons. So platinum. <laughs> yeah, for our philosophers, for all you philosophers out there, we're going to go deep into Illuminati and, and reasons behind circumcision. And uh, anyways, well, listen. This has been yeah an amazing dialogue. Really, thank you both so much for coming on. When, I know we tapped a bunch of different issues here. Yeah. Before we close off, I want to ask each of you, um, start, we'll start with you, Alyssa. If you got one message to uh, a woman who is considering a, a decision at this time, who is, I guess, new to the, this information, um, what would you say to that person? First and foremost, that... You have everything that you need within you already to achieve anything that you desire. Um, Don't question yourself. Find that place within yourself where your knowing and your intuition, it's calling out to you every turn that you make. And it's vital, especially in this um, field with birthing, with mothering, and um, yeah, de- definitely in motherhood, it, it changes the way that you mother. It changes how you perceive the world and what you take on and absorb from the world. So definitely do your own research, become educated and informed and know where to look and speak to people that um, are aligned with you. You know, um, yeah, I think it's super important just to understand that we were born to do this. Um, we were, we were designed for this. Our body is not a lemon. Um, you know, you have everything that you need already. You are deeply connected with your baby. Your baby knows exactly what to do and you don't need saving. So I think it's really important to, to really find those places within yourself that brings you back to that and doing all of the healing. And I mean, motherhood's another level. Um, I think it's, definitely transforms you in a way you could have never imagined and so many things um, pop up in a child wounds and things you start recognizing as your your mother and your own children so starting on that journey is essential don't be scared be brave because you were born for this and you were born for this time and your baby was born for this time so yeah nice I would just really, I want to echo what you said, that everything you have is already within you. And if there's ever been an opportunity for reclamation, mm. it's now yes. yeah. and it's this, and it's going to look different for everyone. Um, and just remember that there are, you know, we feel very isolated right now. We feel very polarized, but there are so many people who are wondering the same thing that you are wondering and they're looking for a doorway. So reach out to people, start looking around, asking questions, taking the temperature here and there and, and follow your bliss truly. Um, that's where the answers are. Yes. Cool. Awesome. Well, speaking of reaching out to people, how can people reach out to you or find you? Or do you have any courses coming up, projects, et cetera? Uh, share your information. I mean, we'll have it in our show notes too, but you know. Yeah, I'm always doing online birth classes. Um, 
live on Zoom. I do them one-on-one. -on -one. I do individual coaching sessions. Um, I can help people build birth plans. You know, I can offer doula support wherever you are. You can find me on Instagram, um, Telegram, my website. Yeah. Cool. We'll have all of those listed below. Lisa? Yeah, definitely. Instagram, uh, mindfulandhome underscore. Um, I am offering doula support also via Zoom because unfortunately we cannot offer in hospital support at this time. Um, things are very restricted here in Australia. So I am offering my, my gift and my services to anyone who has a question, who is seeking more information. Um, I can point you in the right direction if that's what you feel called to do. So I'm sure Ayla and, and definitely me, we'd love to connect and and help you yeah um, because you deserve that birth is not a scary thing birth is amazing birth is so incredible um it's euphoria and it just makes all the difference to be surrounded by good people who know the way who have experienced this and there is a better way than what you've been taught there is a better way than all the fear that you carry and yeah super passionate about it obviously <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah it's been yeah. such a such an honor to share this space with the with the two of you for the past two hours and have this vital conversation which more conversations need to be had around this topic um super super privileged to 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 know you both and to share this information and this dialogue um and i'm, pr I'm proud to proud to be here truly and proud to put this out um everyone thank you so much for listening to this episode of here for the truth this has certainly been a paradigm shattering episode and that's what our ml is that's why we're here and these are the conversations which you I mean we we, we want to keep having everyone that supports and listens to this podcast we really really appreciate you and uh, we'll see you all next time take care <laughs> bye smoking mirrors i'm seeing through the illusion Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean.